Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Junkie. Podcast Junkie. What if I told you there was one platform that not only covered all the genres and topics enjoyed on so many different platforms? Podcast Junkie will be a bite-sized podcast ranging from 4 minutes to a max of 15, giving you a quick overview of why I personally enjoy podcasts, and even a sneak peek of an episode or a trailer for the show we're talking about that week. We'll hope you'll let Podcast Junkie be the TV guide, so to speak, or better yet, the podcast guide to your next obsession, Podcast Junkie. This episode contains sexual content and some sexual humor. It is not appropriate for young listeners. Thank you. Who are we going to learn about today, Karen? Today, we are going to learn about Sir Mansfield Smith coming. He was a World War I era spy and a spy master, and this is his story. The date marking the beginning of Mansfield's life indicated the crazy ride ahead of him. He was born on April 1st, 1859, so April Fool's Day. He was the youngest of 13 children born to Colonel John and Maria Thomas. Colonel Thomas served in the Royal Engineers. 13 kids, Chuck. How would you like That's that? That's a lot. That's a lot of kids. I could it's handle like them, though. It's I like the old woman who lived in the shoe. Yeah, well, I'd have my own baseball team. Well, they I think it was five boys. The rest were girls, so. But. What is wrong with you? Girls can play baseball. No, I know. I, I was, it was Wow, just... now we're going to get all kinds of emails. <laughs> I was just commenting. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Well, the British Royal Engineers were a big deal. They were also known as the RE or Sappers. And they have a long history. They descended from William the Conqueror's military engineers, developed in 1066. That was a long time ago. Long, long time ago. The I'm RE really like that. <laughs> well, you can, I'm surprised you could do that math, Karen. <laughs> but anyway, the RE really started organizing into a well-oiled machine by 1716. They began development in aeronautics in the 1860s with the development of air balloons and eventually evolved into fixed aircraft development by 1911. The engineers formed the Air Battalion, the first flying unit of the British Armed Forces, which was the precursor to the eventual RAF Royal Air Force. In the First World War, RE tunneling units Okay, I, I just I just want to say this. Listeners, do you know why he says the first war? <laughs> it's because he can't say World War One. <laughs> World War. <laughs> See? Carry on, carry on. Okay. In the first World War, World <laughs> War One. Good job. Our E-tunneling units called moles were formed to dig attacking tunnels under enemy lines. And they also designed and built frontline fortifications. The RE was also responsible for maintaining the roads, 
railways, water supply, and bridges. You know I had to do that to you since you threw in your little math comment, right? I did. I just mangle I war I say war twice. War war. Well, World to be, War II. I don't to know be fair, I, when I was talking about the kids, I only said five sons because I couldn't remember how many daughters that would make take 13. <laughs> right. Well, growing up around his father's job inspired young Mansfield and developed several of the interests that later served him in life. He developed a deep love of technology and gadgets, and he saw the importance of creativity, research, and development. Um, later on, you will find he, he also learned the importance of trial and error. <laughs> so history also shows that espionage was common within the Sapper community because they were responsible for infrastructure and they would often need to gather enemy intelligence in order to maintain effective fortifications and systems. So it's pretty likely that the kid heard stories of intrigue that gave him a foundation that would later build an entire network, really a whole entire system of spies. At the tender age of 12, Mansfield was sent to Dartmouth Royal Navy College for training. See, I mean, I, can't, I need to send my 14-year-old to a Navy college for training. Maybe they'll like whip him into shape for me. Upon I don't think so. I know you're 14-year-old. I think it would take <laughs> more than a Navy to ship, whip him into shape. Oh, goodness. Well, upon graduation, Mansfield ended up serving seven years in operations against melee pirates. Now... When I was doing research for this episode, I went down this entire black hole about pirates. I mean, I learned so many cool things about pirates, but I found out something that I didn't know before. And when I asked you, you knew it because, you know, you know everything. So you either knew it or you pretended to know it. But the Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride was a real guy. He was he, like... They based him on a real person. Right. Yes, and did. he was actually the... The pirate's name was Roberts, and I really can't believe you didn't know that he was super as much wealthy. As you watched the Princess Bride, and he kind of had a democracy going on a ship. Like he was actually, you know, it was really interesting because pirates have there. There's like a hierarchy with different kinds of pirates. It's just really interesting stuff. So I don't know. Kind of into the whole pirate thing now. Okay, can you climb out of the rabbit hole and tell us more about Mr. Cummings, please? <sighs> I suppose. I suppose. Well, after he was doing his work against the pirates, there was never any indication that he was ever seasick. But in 1883, he ended up in Cape Colony, where all of a sudden he began suffering debilitating seasickness. To the well, in fairness, though, Karen, mm -hmm. I did not have allergies until I was 40 years old. So it could happen. I don't think it's the same thing, but okay. But here, you're about to learn some more information that, that gives this a little bit more skepticism. So by 1885, he was deemed so sick that he was placed on the unfit to serve list. Okay. Now, that same year that he was put on that list, he married Dora Clote who was a lovely young girl that he happened to meet when he got there in Cape Colony. You know, right when he started to get sick. Okay, now I'm skeptical, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he wanted to spend some time with his lady. But 
tragically, his bride died in 1887, and she was only 20. So that's really sad. As difficult as it was, Mansfield was nothing if not resilient, and two years later, he married again. This time, he wed extremely wealthy. She wasn't just rich. She was filthy rich. She was like Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Scottish Logie heiress, Leslie Marianne Valiant Cumming. And she was known by her friends and family simply as May. Now, within her entire name, it is hard to come up with May, but that is apparently what she went by. As part of their wedding agreement, he had to take her name and Mansfield George Smith formally became Mansfield Smith Cumming. Their wedding took place in March of 1889 and the couple welcomed the arrival of their son, Alistair, in December. Since Mansfield was now considered unable to serve, which, like us, many historians also view with some skepticism, he spent the next 13 years working as an estate manager and private secretary to the Earl of Meath. Not the Earl of Me, the Earl of Meath. Right, and this is very important later on in the story. (laughs) Go ahead. No, it's not. Huh, okay. During this time, he sometimes had to travel and take on different personas in order to conduct business, so this also added to his toolkit of espionage. In 1889, he was placed in charge of organizing boom defense at Southampton. I just want to say, like, boom, every time I say that word. Well, boom defense ships... We're wait, wait, wait. You're, you're really not going to tell everybody how when we read through this, you were like, boom, shaka-laka, shaka-laka every single time? You know what? I'm trying to be professional, Karen. <sighs> People tune into this show to be educated and entertained. That's right. Not for a bunch of tomfoolery. And banter. Now, I wish. <laughs> that banter. Yes, banter. <laughs> so I'm, tr- I'm trying to just get through my parts in a professional, like a professional journalist. So, anyway, the boom shakalaka so defense ships. <laughs> <laughs> the boom defense ships were net laying ships, and their main function was to lay and maintain steel anti torpedoes or anti submarine nets. That doesn't sound. And this could be very dangerous work, and net layers had to be experts at blocking tackles, <laughs> knots, and splicing, which would also be helpful for a spy and a serial killer. Be- And a football player. And football player, yeah. Well, Mansfield liked what he did, and he continued to do it for several years. Then, at the age of 50, while he's almost retired and he's pretty content on his houseboat. So I suppose he got over that seasickness thing. Apparently. Apparently. We find out later boating is really his thing. So yeah, it looks like it. Mansfield was the recipient of a mysterious letter that invited him to London, and it promised that there was an offer that would make it worth it, and it was something good. <laughs> yeah, it was from a Nigerian prince. That sounds shady. If I was his wife and I opened that, I would be like, oh, what kind of offer and why is it good? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Mansfield couldn't help but be intrigued. He was getting a bit bored. And bored Mansfield coming could mean a plethora of unexpected excitement for everyone around him. 
Cumming couldn't help but get a bit excited when he heard the prospects laid before him. He and Vernon Kell were being recruited to head up two sections of the Secret Intelligence Service. Kell was tasked with investigating espionage, sabotage, 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 yes, yes, and subversion within Britain, eventually being known as MI5, while Cumming would be in charge of the operation outside Britain, which would eventually evolve into MI6. From the early 1900s to about 1914, his section was working just on a shoestring budget. Mansfield first had to recruit part-time agents, and part-time agents usually just aren't as good as, you know, agents that do it full-time. So, Much like amateur and part-time dentists are not right. as good as or heart surgeons, professional right. dentists. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of want the, the professional ones. Well, he would have them take positions in shipping businesses at German shipyards. And when he had some left, he would also try to deploy agents to Brussels, Rotterdam, and St. Petersburg. Although, had- Karen, they yes. all ended up in Lisbon. <laughs> That's where all the spies go. It's party in Lisbon. Well, he himself was just working constantly. He began at 9.30 a.m., and quit at 11.30 p.m., and he worked all week, except when he was allowed a small break on a Saturday here or there. Why was he so crazy busy, you ask? Spy fever, that's why. Yes, spy fever, Karen, also Mm -hmm. known as fake news. Boom chakalaka. Yeah, in 1903, Erskine Childers published one of the first spy novels, The Riddle of the Sands. The plot was about an Englishman who uncovers an insidious German plan for invasion. When is a plan for invasion not insidious? Okay, how much coffee have you had today? Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. (laughs) I'm just asking you. That's okay. You just seem a little... You seem engaged tonight, Karen. I'm being like you. (laughs) Okay, well, you generally... A plan for invasion is insidious. I'll agree agree with that. Mm -hmm. The book was a bestseller and spawned many copycat novels. Now, because the stories played on very real fears the Brits had regarding Germany, the fever gripped Britain. It gripped Britain hard, Chuck. It did. Then the press didn't help, especially when one of the biggest papers, the Daily Mail, paid author Lecue to write a serialized fictional account of a German invasion. Now, this isn't a newspaper, right? Right. You're getting your newspaper every morning, and you're (laughs) hearing this like the war of the worlds. Right. I said that fine. I didn't stumble over that at all. No, I didn't. Wow. By 1908, I'm cured. The public was writing tons of letters. (laughs) They were turning their neighbors and friends in as spies. They they were probably turning their enemies in as well, I would imagine. They were. The guy with the barking dog and the couple right. that fought next door. They're a spy. Yeah. Person who played their 78 phonograph too loud. <laughs> well, as public concern swelled, so did demand. <laughs> and the fledgling departments had to investigate every single claim. Uh... Now, despite years of intelligence work, The network of spies people were convinced walked among them never did materialize. Nope. 
Well, despite how busy he was, Mansfield still found the time to have fun. Before he was recruited, he had been very active and was especially fond of any form of transport that went very, very fast. The man loved speed. He always had a Rolls Royce, and he would even make sure that the vehicle was delivered via boat wherever he traveled, which wasn't always convenient. He owned a small fleet of yachts, and he had at least six motorboats. His love of boat sports saw him become one of the founders of the Royal Motor Yacht Club. Remember, this is the guy who had seasickness. Right. Right. He tried to enjoy time on the water when he could steal a moment or two, and he often brought Alistair along, who also learned to crave a need for speed. Doesn't that sound like Iceman and Maverick? Well, they hated each other, so... Yeah, but they had a need. A need for speed. They did, yes. In 1913, after public fear began to ebb a bit and things started to slow down, Mansfield Cumming decided he needed to experience the next new thing, and he decided to take up flying. He quickly earned his French Aviator and Royal Air Club certificates. As I was doing the research on this, I was thinking about um, aviation and how that really changed the face of spying. As aviation became more of a thing... Um, spying became more of a thing. Espionage had to take on a more macro perspective because people could go further. I mean, they could get places faster and stuff. And so it really changed everything. Yeah, I will I will grant you that <laughs> light changed many things. Yes, it did, Karen. <laughs> yeah, I'm very absurd. Yes. I'm, so, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, it, well, it's just your insights are amazing. Well, okay, before everyone writes poor Mansfield off as an entitled adrenaline-seeking douche canoe, he was actually considered by everyone to be a pretty nice guy, even though he was a quirky guy. He was known to write long letters to his nieces and nephews, and his words were always filled with dramatic flair, as well as with kindness and humor. He took area children on rides in his personal tank. Okay, maybe having a personal tank is a little douchey, but I mean, if you have a tank, wouldn't you want one? I mean, if you oh, could have I'd a have tank. I'd have a whole fleet. Right. I'd have, we actually had a guy here in, in town that had his own tank. Was he a douche? Was that like, I mean. Um, they took his tank away. Oh, listen, you don't ever well, have he, your tank taken away? Well, you know, as you heard uh, you know, during the July Fourth parades, well, Chuck, tanks would, are not good for streets. They're they are not, not really they are good not. for the blacktop. So, would would you say that his plans were tanked? Okay. <laughs> There's another bad review. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Mansfield's coworkers claimed that Cumming had a very cheerful personality and a keen sense of professionalism amidst all of his silliness. If he took issue with someone professionally, he never allowed it to infringe on their personal friendship. Cumming was also known to sometimes have a hot temper, but it never lasted that long. As Agent Paul Dukes described, Woe to the unfortunate soul who ever incurred his ire. But the stern countenance could melt into the kindliest of smiles, 
and softened eyes and lips would reveal a heart that was big and generous. Aww. But really, I mean, really think about this, Karen. Mm-hmm. He didn't just go on missions. He did everything here. All of the admin and budget stuff, the recruiting, the training, the spycraft development, the designing operations. It's it's actually all pretty amazing. And when we it really talk is. we talk about MI6 in a ton of episodes. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who built it. Mm-hmm. And he was a bit of a nut job. He was. He was. But, you know, that's okay. He, he did was eccentric. Job. He was. Now, while her husband was busy doing all that you just mentioned, May, the ever proper Scottish lady, was tending to whatever wealthy heiresses tend to. So the couple didn't really get to spend that much time together. And this may have had something to do with it. Mansfield had an eye for the ladies, and he also had a penchant for Edwardian pornography, which he shrugged off as being a student of the female form divine. So he had a nice way of wording it, if nothing else. Well, in the early years of his spy work, Cumming would take to the field himself. He loved disguises, and he would often use a mustache hat, a full costume, and body cushioning to alter his appearance. He always considered that type of thing to be capital sport. However, Mansfield was not always so great at the field operations. He didn't always direct his agents in a detailed manner, often because he was too wrapped up in the delight of the deception. And he also didn't think about things like making sure they had the proper language skills, things of that nature. Once while abroad, he lost his weapons specialist because the agent had gotten off the elevator at the wrong floor and then was unable to find any English-speaking people to give him directions. So he just wandered around for hours and hours and hours. So another time, while in disguise, Mansfield tried to casually engage a German in conversation. Unfortunately, He gave himself away by constantly consulting his language guide in between uncertain halting (laughs) phrases. This is basically like, hello, looking down. I (laughs) speak the German. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Also, he wasn't so great with code names. Um, when he would give his agents their their code names, they usually ended up with very transparent names that had to do with their, like their actual last name. So, for example, there was an agent Peel, and he was codenamed Orange. But Chuck, Chuck, Orange, you glad I didn't say banana? No. Okay. Well, the code names were almost as bad as my puns. So that gives you an indication. Bad. Yeah, really bad. One of the biggest early obstacles were soldiers that were all caught up in spy fever who volunteered as intelligence officers. Pick me, pick me. Because he was so short-staffed, Cumming felt compelled to use them, but they usually rendered nothing but libelous accusations. He's <laughs> <laughs> a spy! It's a spy. Not another lawsuit. All the while touting their spy status. So they're like, you're a spy. I know this because I'm a spy. I'm a spy. They're sitting around the bar. I'm a spy. Yeah. Did I mention I'm a spy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This issue led to much wasted time and many wasted resources. 
One thing to consider regarding his perceived ineptitude. The very best spies often acted like bumbling idiots so that they could create a layer of protection around them and offer the opportunity for double crossing, a very effective way to gather enemy intel while boosting the enemy's confidence and making them feel like they had the upper hand. Other times it sounds like some of the spies he had were bumbling idiots right. and just kind of went around, but so. You know, the Pink Panther, Inspector Clouseau, he was brilliant. <laughs> but a bubbling idiot. Yeah. What's really interesting is that before he was actually recruited, while he was involved with the Royal Motor Yacht Club, he actually kind of spied. He was sent abroad by the Foreign Office, and he had to covertly study the development of motor propulsion and fishing fleets in Sweden and Holland. And he did this pretty well. So we really don't know if the file that we have, the info in that file is true or just what he wanted people to think. And also the first couple of years, I mean, people, the agents that worked for him didn't even know like his name. They didn't know anything about him. He basically didn't exist until, you know, later on. So he he kept things very, 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 very quiet. I've said earlier, you know, he was a professional. He could be very silly and very eccentric, but he was also this consummate professional. It's really interesting. Well, after the outbreak of the war, Cumming found his first success with the arrest of 22 actual German spies. The government was thrilled because, you know, you want spies? I don't know. Yeah, More money got came paid by the spy. They right. executed 11 of those spies. They did. They did. More money came in and more money meant that he would have more qualified agents that he could recruit. So things were looking up. Doors were opening. Now, some people say that when a door closes, a window opens. For Mansfield Smith Cummings, when his work door opened, his home window slammed shut. Alistair Cumming had grown up to be a very accomplished young man in his own right. Upon graduation, he joined the 1st Battalion Seaforth Highlanders and was serving in India. He had done so well there that he received honors for gallant and distinguished service in the field. On a beautiful October day, Mansfield picked his son up from HQ for 10 days of leave. Mansfield had a new roles, and he couldn't wait to let his son try it out. And when Alistair got in the car, Mansfield told his son that he could drive the new Rolls Royce Silver Ghost. Excited and relieved to be free for a few days, Alistair slipped behind the wheel. He was driving at 60 miles an hour when they hit an unlit farm cart. This sent them spinning into a tree. The wreckage was horrific. Alistair was thrown from the car, and Mansfield was penned underneath it. Mansfield strained to see how his son was, but the boy was non-responsive, and Mansfield's leg was useless under the angrily twisted metal. Hours went by. Finally, Mansfield heard his son's voice call out weakly, Dad, I'm cold, really cold. With animalistic ferocity, Mansfield took a pocket knife that he found and hacked at his limb until he could free himself enough to scoot over to his son. He covered Alistair with his coat and passed out next to his boy. It took nine hours for them to be found. 
The two men were rushed to the hospital, but it was too late for Alistair. At 29, the young man would never see 30. The damage to Mansfield's leg forced doctors to amputate it. Well, and there are red lines in people's lives, and when they occur, that person is never the same. There's life before and life after. And for a while, trapped with his thoughts in the hospital bed, Mansfield wasn't sure that life was worth living at all. But Mansfield Smith Cummings was a man who lived. As much as he might have wanted to, he could not allow himself to die in that bed. He had to live the life that his son couldn't. And so that is what he was determined to do. Six weeks later, Mansfield returned to work, fitted with a wooden prosthetic leg. Another wooden prosthetic leg, Chuck. We have more spies have wooden legs than pirates. <laughs> I like, think so. Two out of every three episodes we do has a wooden leg in it. Yeah. That's very strange. Well, his co-workers, their hearts broken for him, gently eased him back to the man he used to be. Only now, he would sometimes have that faraway look in his eyes, and a mist would form. His humor was a little edgier now, his laugh sharper, and living life in the fast lane didn't hold so much appeal. He traded in his adrenaline-seeking activities for a self-financed lab so that he could develop new spycraft. He began to collect inventions and obsess over the newest technology. He no longer found himself operating in the field, and he took to thinking of innovative forms of concealment and evasion. He hired codebreakers and a physicist who specialized in invisible inks. In one kind of weird incident, he received a report that a new type of invisible ink could be utilized in the field and not be revealed with the use of iodine vapor. And the best thing about it was you didn't have to worry about running out because you could make it yourself if you were a man. Do, do you know what I'm talking Are about? Are you not able to say the word semen, Karen? Oh, my God. No. Just say it. It's, it was I, invisible I ink from semen. I can't say it. <laughs> I can't. Really, I mean, it was pretty amazing. They said every man was his own stylo. They joked around. About I know, it. I know, I know. I think it's amazing. I've gotten through this whole script with his last name. I mean, I'm just saying. yes, I know like, you're that's... squeamish on mm. words like that, but okay. Well, excitement waned after a little bit of trial and error because it was discovered that when the message dried, the smell was pretty unbearable. Although it did actually work as an invisible ink. It did. So they said if they had to use it to do it in a fresh way, which right. if you're in a life or death situation, I mean, do you, I wouldn't think <laughs> yeah, that, that someone, would be tough. yeah, I would think that it would be, but thankfully that did not become a regular thing. So they learned, although that plan didn't work out so well, others did. There were signet rings that squirt poison hollow teeth, surveillance pipes, exploding bread loaves, and many more. See, and you, you skipped the best one on purpose because you couldn't say that. Just say it. Okay, there was also a hollow horse penis that they would attach to female horses so that 
it would look like it was a male horse and they could hide messages and contraband. Hide in documents. In <laughs> okay, go ahead. Are you happy now? Are you happy that you made me say horse penis? Does that make you feel good? <laughs> that was one of the greater inventions, I thought. And you just skipped right over it. Well, Cumming also helped grow the spy network La Dame Blanche. La Dame Blanche got its name from the legend of the white lady whose appearance was to herald the downfall of the Hohenzollern dynasty. The dynasty the Kaiser was a part of. The network utilized people of all genders, ages, and classes. Even the elderly and young children were involved. And under Mansfield, the network grew to over 400, and it was incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. As Mansfield grew into his leadership role, he never stopped being his quirky self. He was known to wear a gold monocle, and he had a walking stick with a hidden rapier. When he was vetting a new agent, he would often suddenly take out his knife and jam it into his wooden leg. Now, keep in mind, the agent didn't know that it was a prosthesis, so he would just jam a knife in his leg. He would gauge the agent's worth by their response to his stunt. He was also prone to pull the same trick at a boring meeting. Like, I can see you doing this. Well, you know what? I think I've shown you this once. One of the really cool things I can do is because of some nerve damage in my elbow, my pinky on my left hand is numb. So like G. Gordon Liddy and Will, I can hold it over a candle flame. I think I've shown you that, haven't I? Hmm. That's interesting. I don't remember the script being called Chuck Walters. <laughs> as much as you have jumped in with your nonsense, <laughs> I can't tell. One little, th I can also dislocate my thumb on demand. I am very That impressed. really creeps people out. Yeah, I don't have any feeling in my left hand either. And so I can just pinch it really hard and draw blood and it looks weird. But I still don't think either one of our things are as cool as being able to stab yourself in the leg and just be like, ah. And His habit of signing all documents with a sweeping green C is still done today to designate the chief position. They don't always use green ink, but they always do a C. Basically, you know, his larger-than-life demeanor was just really inspiring, and it actually ended up inspiring Bond's M character. So that's kind of cool. After a career of service and building an unbreakable foundation, Sir Mansfield Smith Cumming was due to retire in 1923. But sadly, he passed away suddenly of unknown causes in his Kenningston home on June 14th of that same year. So that sucks. I remember, he didn't get started with all this stuff until he was over 50. Right, right. So it's like a whole second life. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout his career, Smith Cumming ran operations in many countries. He recruited some of history's most well-known spies and was dealt some huge wins as well as huge losses. You know, basically, he was the first kid. You know, like, you try everything on that first kid, and right. then you yeah. learn your mistakes, and it gets, you know, he, that's, he, all the, the learning was done with him. So, Mansfield's biographer said of him, the organization he formed grew into what was shaped to this day by his integrity, determination, humor, and idiosyncrasies. That is ultimately his legacy. 
Mansfield Smith Cumming was the baby of the family, a somewhat spoiled recruit, a proper gentleman, a grieving widower, a new daddy, a man who chased after the wind both literally and figuratively, master of disguise, friend to many, grieving father, and builder of a legacy. And he was a spy. Our show depends on your support. You can support us in a number of ways. Obviously, you can support us on Patreon, where you can find us at Spy Stories. And we'd like to thank a couple of Patreon supporters, Ruck and Sarah. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. You can share our episodes on Facebook. You can retweet us. You can tell your friends about us. Or you can join our Facebook group at Spy Stories Podcast Group and just give us feedback on our episodes. Thank you. The life of Mansfield Smith coming reminds us that even those with plenty are not immune from pain. He reminds us that laughter can be had in the most mundane of places, and life is for the living, so we should live it. We should be both silly and serious according to season. And we should keep going even in the after moments. Like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. (laughs) 